If uh, you made it in today without Bible in hand, please raise your hand. Let us bring a Bible to you, Bible and or outline. You'll need that today. Today, you want to turn to the book of Hebrews, which is kind of at the end of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, you turn all the way to the very end, you find Revelation, work your way back, and you'll find the book of Hebrews, just a few, few books from the end. How's everybody doing today? Good. It's, it's good to be back. Um, again, if this is uh, your first time with us today, then a, a very special welcome to you. Also, hi to everybody who is in the video venue room, or we'll say hi to you also. And if you don't know, if you're new, my name is Dan. We're glad that you're here today. And uh, I've been on vacation for the last two weeks, so I'm just coming back in. And uh, so if I mess this up, just know I'm out of practice. That's, that's why. So, but it's good to be back. We, we went to Tennessee. We took the kids and uh, great times. Just, but you know what it does is it just makes you, I, I don't know how it is for you, but I love being here. So it's, uh, for me, I'm, we had a great time being away, but it's good to be back. Good to be back. What's more relaxing than 11 kids on vacation? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just relax, relax, relax. <laughs> 10 days, too. We drove a little fast on the way home. (laughs) Well, anyways, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin a new book today, and um, I'm always excited when we begin a new book. You know, here at Calvary, we teach uh, through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and and verse by verse, and I'm always excited when we begin because I think at the end of this, we're going to know this book. And uh, this is one of those great books where there's so much in it. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the, the deeper books of the New Testament. So each week, the question is going to be, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Your outline has us going all the way through the first chapter, but we might only get through the first three verses today. So, uh, but that's okay because it'll be there next week. So I, I don't typically do that, but every once in a while, it just seems to work out that way. This is a... Um, a fascinating book. It's called Hebrews, and uh, in most of the New Testament books, it will begin with like talking to the church of Corinth or to the Philippians, and it names who it's speaking to, but nowhere in this book does it name who it's actually being written to. It's called Hebrews because as you read the book, you realize that whoever wrote this book is writing it to a group of people who have an amazing command of the Old Testament. So they would be Jewish believers. And uh, so much of a command of the Old Testament that there's going to be several times where the writer is going to, as he's quoting an Old Testament book, and and, uh, this book will have more Old Testament quotations than any other book, but as he's quoting, he'll just stop in the middle of the verse, just assuming that that they know it and they're just going to complete it. For instance, if I say something like, Jesus said, it's better to give than to See, you all know that. I don't even have to finish it. You just know that. But uh, what we're going to find is we don't have that same command of the Old Testament as, as they did. So when he stops halfway through, there'll be a few places where we'll look back and see what was actually being said as we kind of complete the thought. Now, um, we're going to see that this book is also written more like a sermon. It's going to have lots of repetition as the writer makes his point. There's a lot of topics that are going to be covered in this particular book. It's going to be very practical. The the theological part is going to be in the first couple of verses, but it's going to become very, 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 very practical as we go through it. So we're going to see a few things as we travel through, and I have just a couple of verses I want to walk through. We're going to put them on the screen. The first verse we're going to find that this book is written to believers. It will say, therefore, holy brothers. Never in this book does he question their salvation, that they're standing with God. 
It's also going to be a book that talks a great deal about faith. Next verse, it'll say, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that, that promise. And one of the things that we're going to do when we get there, we're going to interpret that verse in its context, and then we're going to see its wider application. But this book is going to talk a great deal about faith. Another, another verse is going to say, for indeed we, have the, we had the good news preached to us just as they also, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And we're going to discover that you can have all the promises of God, but if you don't believe them and you don't act on them, they're going to do you absolutely no good. We'll talk about that when we get there. And uh, the next verse we're going to see, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence uh, or the conviction of things not seen. And one of the things that we're going to see is that faith is believing what God says, not what our current circumstances have to say. And the two are very, very different. Well, another verse that we're going to see is that without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. One of the things that we're going to find, and you've probably seen, but there are many people who will believe in God, but they never come to the place where they actually believe God. And we're going to talk about that as we go. The way that we please God is that we trust not just in him, but we actually trust him. So this audience that, that Paul is, is writing to in that first century, uh, they're going to come from a very strong Jewish background, but they've also been through some difficulty over the past few years. So we're going to see verses like this on the screen. <laughs> and Paul would say to them, uh, okay, well, we'll go with that verse. So, so in the midst of, of some difficulty, okay, we'll go back to that verse then. Thank you. We're good? <laughs> I'm going to go with this one right now. <laughs> and, and Paul would say, you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. This is a, a church who at times, uh, because of persecution and just difficulty, had really had the bottom fall out. And being a believer really cost them something. But one of the things that we're going to see is in the midst of them going through that, it's going to say, let's go back to that other verse. There you go. In the midst of that, they faithfully ministered to the needs of others. So even though they personally were going through a difficult time, they made a way to make sure that they were reaching out to others who were also going through a difficult time. And so maybe today you're in that place where the bottom is falling out of your life and uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to work out. We're going to talk a great deal about what we'll call enduring faith as you walk through those difficult times. How do you do that? How do you exercise that faith? But we're not just going to talk about enduring faith. We're going to talk about conquering faith. Notice this verse. There it is. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. See, there's enduring faith where we get through it, and then there's conquering faith where we go out and we do great things for God. There are many of us in this room, in this church, and certainly at the church at large, who God is calling to step out and to trust him and do something great for God that will be a great blessing for many people. And it's going to take some conquering faith to do that. And the reason I say that is because it takes faith because not every day when you're launching out doing something great for God does it always look like it's going to work out. 
If it always looked like it was going to work out, it wouldn't require any faith. And so we're going to talk about how do you walk in that faith? How do you trust God as you go through difficult times and as you accomplish great things for God? So we're going to see that as we travel through. We're also going to see that there's one uh, problem that we're going to see in this church that, uh, well, actually, uh, one, one more verse. Let me go to one more verse. This book, this entire book, at the end of the book, it's going to say, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. That's the book of Hebrews. For I have written to you briefly. The entire book is written to be an exhortation. The word exhortation and encouragement are essentially the, the same word in the Greek language. So this book each week is going to encourage us and exhort us to keep walking in our faith with God. So we'll see that as we travel through. But there is one problem that's going to be throughout this entire book. Again, this is a book that's written to uh, people who came from a very Jewish background. And so in, in Judaism, there were a list of rules and rituals that you did to be right with God, and then you did certain things to stay right with God. And so we're going to find that, that they began to drift back. I think we have one more verse. And uh, Paul's going to say, therefore, we must give attention, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. And what we're finding is that they are drifting back. They're not losing their salvation, but they're drifting back into a form of religion where they're trusting certain rituals and regulations to keep themselves right with God. And that that's going to be important because that's going to go through the entire book. We would think that that's something that happened way back then, but I think you'll agree if you've been around the church for any length of time, it's something that the church struggles with. We, uh, before coming to Calvary, I went to a wonderful church, but uh, in, in that church, to be a member of that church, you, you had to sign a covenant, and that covenant said that you had to agree that you could never dance, uh, no smoking, uh, no, no drinking in any way. You could never have a glass of wine or anything like that. You couldn't go to movies, and, uh, you know, and, and anybody, you couldn't play cards, and anybody who did those things was considered less spiritual than the rest who were keeping the covenant you know, that you signed when you, you joined the church. And, uh, and when, when I went to college my first year, I grew up in Miami, here, here in South Florida, and I went to what's called a Wesleyan Holiness College in Kentucky. And so in Kentucky, we had certain rules, and one of the rules was called no mixed bathing. Now, what that means, for us Floridians, it sounds kind of odd, but what it means is men and women do not swim at the same place at the same time, and, and you know, it, 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 you just don't swim around the opposite sex. And uh, so that was their big rule. Now, I grew up in Miami, so we didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have issues like that. Everybody swam. That was not a big deal. After church, we all went to the beach, we went to the lake, whatever. Everything we did had to do with the water, so we didn't have issues like that. Our debates were, were a little bit different, like the old um, one-piece, two-piece bathing suit debate. Was it right for believers to wear one-piece or two-piece bathing suits? And that was a big debate. Now, I know many of you who've been here for a long time, you know that this is one of those areas that I do take a stand on. And if you're new here today, I think it's just important that I tell you that, that as far as the one-piece, two-piece bathing suit debate, there are issues of modesty, there are issues of morality, and so I have a certain conviction. I don't put it on anybody else, but just so you know, for me personally, I will no longer wear a two-piece bathing suit. <laughs> now... Before you think I'm being self-righteous, I'm not saying I didn't go through my time of rebellion like everybody else, okay? So, and we don't put it on anybody else. Pastor Ryan, different 
viewpoint. You go to the beach. You see him skipping in the waves in his little two-piece bathing suit. I don't judge him, okay? So, but for me, that's just my standard. So I just put that out there, hopefully. <laughs> so there's going to be lots of topics that we're going to talk about in this book as we, as we travel through. And uh, one of the things that we're going to find is that uh, there are themes that go, go through this book. And uh, we're going to see that there are certain words that Paul will emphasize as we travel through. For instance, there in your outline, you'll see there's a list of words. The first word is better. Does everybody see that word? And then we'll fill that in in just a second. That word better uh, or superior, some of your translations might say, will appear 13 times in this, in this book. And we'll talk about a better hope, better covenant, better promises. And uh, another word will be perfect. And that word will appear 14 times in this book. And it'll talk about those of us who have been perfected forever, them that are sanctified. We've been perfected forever. Another word that's going to be predominant in this book is going to be the word eternal and forever. And that'll be, or or forever, depending on your translation. That'll be mentioned nine times. And uh, it will talk about Jesus, who is the author of eternal salvation. And uh, it will talk about you and I as believers, we have obtained eternal redemption and uh, we have an eternal inheritance. And one of the things that Paul will drive home for us is that uh, if, if, it's, if you can lose it, then it's not eternal. And it's eternal because you can't lose it. And we'll talk about that as we travel through. So I want you to fill in the blanks here in that first sentence because this is going to be a, a major theme. Jesus Christ in the Christian life, he gives us our better because these blessings are eternal and they give us a perfect standing before God. We're going to see that we're right with God, not because of anything that we have done. We're right with God only because of what he has done. My kids are my kids, not because of anything they have done. They are my kids because they've been born into my family. And so that it's, it's, we're going to unpack that as we travel through. Now, another thing, because this is the, the introduction to the book, we have to discuss who actually wrote this book. This book is unique. The other the other um, books in the New Testament will begin with like I, Paul, and or, or John will, you know, they'll, they'll tell us who it is that's writing it. This book doesn't say to the Hebrews, we get that because we, we read through it, and it also never says who wrote this book. So who wrote this book? Well, I hold to the commonly held view that this book was written by Paul the Apostle. And, and for, for several reasons, other people hold that it was somebody else. But but to me, the evidence suggests that it was Paul the Apostle, and I'll just uh, share with you very quickly why. It's just one of those things you kind of need to know as you get into this, because as we read through, I'll say, Paul says, and uh, you'll, you'll know why I hold that. And, and probably you don't care, but, but it's, a, it's the introduction to the book, so you have to say that. That's what you say, okay. Okay. All right. So in the New Testament, you have uh, some key players. You have Peter and you have Paul. And what's interesting about their ministries is that Peter is called to minister to the Jewish people. And so he writes letters to the Jewish people and he evangelizes the Jewish people, where Paul is called to evangelize the Gentiles, that is those who are non-Jews, mostly coming from a pagan background. So when Paul writes a letter, he's writing to the churches that he had a great deal to do with in their starting and and, and all of that. So he writes to churches that are predominantly Gentile. So Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. But there's this one letter where Peter, who ministers completely to the Jewish population, he says this there in your outline. 
Peter is writing and he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, now underline, wrote to you. Now Peter's writing to Jewish believers. So Paul apparently wrote at least one letter to Jewish believers, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures, underline that, to their own destruction. When he says the rest of the scriptures, grammatically, what Peter has just done is he said this letter that Paul wrote to you is actually scripture. So what is the letter that Paul wrote to Jewish believers? Well, there is no letter in the New Testament that we have where Paul says, I'm writing to Jewish believers. And if it's not the book of Hebrews, then there's another letter that Paul has written to Jewish believers that is scripture, and it's just kind of floating out there. So this is the only book that, that, that would fit that. Does that make sense? Okay. So you'll hear me say that, that Paul wrote this. So if, if you were God and uh, you were writing to people who were going through a very difficult time and they needed to cling to something, and uh, you knew that some of them were going back to a religion that was based upon not what was done for them, but what they do to be made right with God, what would be the very first thing that you would want to write to cover that would become kind of the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about in this book? Now, again, the big question for me each and every week is going to be, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? But uh, what we're going to find in the first three verses Uh, God is going to say, this is what I want you to know about Jesus because he is God. And it all begins with that. So because Jesus is God there in your outline, here's what we need to know about him. And it's in the first three verses. Now I'm going to read the first three verses without stopping. The reason for that in your Bibles, you're going to see that there's periods and commas and things like that. And there's going to be different sentences and verses. When this was written, the first three verses are written as one sentence. Uh, but that, that would uh, fail just about in, any English uh, course in, in our culture. And so when they translated it, they put periods in there. So it looks like several different sentences, but it's one sentence in the original language. So we're going we're gonna to pick it up in verse 1. And it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, to whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Is that the longest run on sentence in the universe? So it's kind of good for us that they put some periods in there. But in the original language, it's one sentence. Now, as we get into this and we unpack the first three verses, there's a couple of assumptions that are made. Not on your outline, but first of all, the, 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 the writer begins with the assumption that God exists. He does not try to prove God's existence. He just assumes that we all get that. In the same way, he would hold that God is self-evident. Like, I would never try to prove my existence. It's just, it's just evident. So he doesn't try to do that. The other assumption in this is that God has spoken. And uh, the idea is that we tend to think in terms of we are seeking God, but the reality is that God is the one who always initiates contact with his creation. 
So God has spoken in times past in a number of different ways. He spoke through prophets, and uh, he spoke, spoke through visions, and at times he spoke through, through angels, and, and the entire Old Testament is filled with that. But the problem with that, although all those things were wonderful, none of those things were the complete picture of who God is. So there, there's always some aspect that, that it, it kind of falls off somewhere as far as explaining completely who God is. And so when he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, what he's saying is that Jesus is the final revelation. He's the complete revelation of who God is. And I want you to just write this down as we go. Previous revelations were incomplete. They weren't bad. They were just incomplete. So what, what, would, what would God want to tell us in this? We're just going to highlight seven things as we, we travel through. First of all, he says in uh, verse 2, it says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And I want you to underline that word, heir of all things. The first thing that God would want us to know is that everything in the universe belongs to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Go ahead and write that down. It belongs to Jesus, uh, in part because he's God and God's, God the Father has given it to him, but we're also going to find that it all belongs to Jesus because he created it. So number two, I want you to write down that uh, Jesus is the creator. Notice in verse two, he says, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. The world was made through Jesus. Now, some of your translations there will say worlds in the plural. How many of your, your Bibles say that? And then uh, some of your Bibles will say he made the universe. How many of your Bibles say that? Good. The, the word there is actually worlds in the plural. And if you put all those worlds in the plural together, you come up with universe. So, so they're, both, they're both right. The idea is that Jesus, because he's God, is the creator. If you've been around the church for any length of time, You've heard this term called the Trinity. You say, where do we get that, that word? It's not a word that you find in the Bible, but it's a word that Christians accept. And it goes like this. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so as you read through the Bible, you find in Genesis chapter 1, it will say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're all familiar with that, right? So God created it. And then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters, and it tells us that he was actively involved in the creation. So you have God the Father in the creation, and then you have God the Spirit in the creation, and then here in the book of Hebrews in John chapter 1 also, it says that Jesus is the creator. It was all created through Jesus. So what you see is you see three of them, they're all God, three personalities, we would say one Godhead, but uh, all, all three personalities, but there is one God. And so all are doing the same thing. So God the Son created, God the Spirit created, and God the Father created. And that's why we have the term the Trinity. Does that make sense? Does anybody understand the Trinity? No, you don't. No, you don't. As a matter of fact, people write books on this, and the truth is we will never actually fully understand it until we're there. The finite can never understand completely the infinite. So, so just know that there's a healthy tension there. So Jesus is the creator because he's God. Then uh, number three, we're going to find, it says that he is the radiance of his glory. Now, I want you to write this down. Uh, because Jesus is God, he is the radiance of 
his glory. He's not God's reflection. Write that down. He's the radiance of his glory. He's not God's reflection. The moon reflects the light of the sun, but it cannot radiate the light from the sun. The only way that this can radiate from Jesus is because Jesus is God. He does not reflect God's greatness, his glory. He radiates that. It comes from him because he's God. And so that's one of the first things that he wants us to know. And, and because Jesus is God, uh, because Jesus is God, number four, we're going to find that he's the perfect representation of God. You want to write that down? Verse three, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact, my Bible says, the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. So the idea is that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus because he's the exact representation of the nature of God. In the Old Testament where God spoke to us, the Old Testament prophets, the priests, would represent God to the people. By and large, they did good, but they didn't get it completely right. Jesus is the one, the only one who gets it completely right because he's God. Here at Calvary, um, every, every week before I come out to pray, I, I know that I represent God to you as a congregation. So one of my big prayers is that, God, I pray that you guard my eyes, my heart, you guard my mouth, and you guard my demeanor, how I communicate with the congregation, because I know that I represent God. And uh, there have been times in the past where, for instance, in the Old Testament, God tells Moses the people are in the wilderness and, and uh, they run out of water. So Moses says, what do we do? Moses is kind of mad at the people, and God says, I want you to go out, speak to a rock, and uh, when you speak to the rock, water's going to come out. So Moses goes out, and he's mad at the people, and he grabs a stick, and he smacks the rock, and uh, water comes out. And so God says, but you know what, Moses? You acted mad in front of the congregation, but I'm not mad. And because you acted mad, uh, you've lost your ability to, to represent me. And so Moses was not allowed to lead God's people into the promised land because he misrepresented God. We don't, we don't always get it right. Now, fortunately, you and I live in a period of grace where sometimes we can blow it and God still restores us. You guys want to hear about a time where I really blew it? Okay. When we had first started the church, we were a couple of years old, and I'm embarrassed to even tell you this. But um, we, we used to have communion before. We'd have worship, then we'd have communion, then we'd have the teaching. And um, there was this family that came to church. And we were still at the old high school. We were brand new at, 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 as a church. Only a few people were coming to the church. And uh, this family comes to church, and they have this kid who's in junior high, so he should know better. And uh, during the, the worship, he's just like all over the place. He's just, you know, just ADD on steroids kind of thing. And then we take communion, and he's goofing off with his brothers, and communion's kind of flying and all that. And uh, one of the elders goes and sits behind him, and he's like saying, you guys just sit down, you need to sit down. But anyways, everybody in that entire section was focused in on this one kid, and he wouldn't stop. And so then I get into the teaching, I'm about halfway through, and this kid's in a wrestling match right down in the front. Everybody's looking at him with his brother. He's in junior high, so he should know better. So I, the love and grace of Jesus, said... <laughs> I pointed to him and said, you, you need to go, we're done. And he goes, me? And I go, yes, you, we're done, 
you need to go. So the entire family stands up, and as they're standing up, I'm realizing this is one of those awkward church moments. That that uh, now understand. I grew up. I grew up in a, in a very early in a Baptist church where the senior pastor would sit there and his boys sat on the front row, and when they would goof off, he'd say, "Boys." You better straighten up. I'm going to take my belt off right here. I'm going to go down and whoop your butt, okay? And he'd say that for the whole church. So I didn't do that, okay? I didn't do that. <laughs> but I said, we're done. You need to leave. And they did. And um, I have felt creepy about that for more than a decade because I knew I misrepresented God. Yeah. <laughs> for me or for the kid? <laughs> Because here's what happened in the church after the service, there were two camps in our church. The ones who wanted to make sure I knew that I'd really blown it, and they were there. And the other ones would come up and say, I would have whooped that boy. You did the right thing. I was waiting for somebody. I was about to do it myself. So anyways, my point in all that is I didn't get that right. I didn't get that right. It's probably an axe murderer. I don't know, but I didn't get that right. But here's... Here's why Paul, I think, writes this to this church, because you're, as you walk with the Lord, there's going to be some people who represent God to you, and sometimes with the very best intentions, and sometimes without the very best intentions, they're going to, they're going to mess that representation up. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, immediately you know a scenario where somebody was supposed to represent God to you, and they didn't. They didn't get it right. And because of that, Paul says, so you need to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He, he's the exact representation of the nature of God. Does that make sense? So they need to know that. They need to know that, just like we need to know that. By the way, uh, one verse. This is one of my life ministry verses here. And uh, there in your outline, it says, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So our heart here is to come alongside of you, never to lord it over you, but to encourage you in your faith. The, the fifth thing he wants this church to know that he's writing to is that it's all going according to his plan, his plan. Verse three says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And in my Bible, it says, and upholds, some of your Bibles will say sustains, and some of your Bibles will use a slightly different wording, but upholds, whatever that word is, you want to underline that, all things by the word of his power. So he's not only the one who created it, he's the one who holds it together. When you look at the creation story, it's all created by his word, God spoke, and now it's all held together because God says. And that's certainly true. But that's one of those words that doesn't translate very well into the English language because it's a much bigger word. So there in your outline, I have uphold, sustaining. The word there is Pharaoh, all things by his powerful word, from his powerful word. Now that, again, that word Pharaoh does not uh, translate into English very, very well. But from the theological dictionary of the New Testament, there in your outline I've placed, it means uh, sustains, upholds, Pharaoh. It means it's a primary verb. It means to carry or bring from one place to another, from one place to another. So it's not just that he's holding it together, but he's carrying it from one place to another. And and again, this word does not translate well into English, but every commentary 
that you read will want to stop and, and illuminate that. For instance, Wearsby's commentary on that word says it means holding and carrying from one place to another. He is the God of creation and the God of providence who guides this universe to its divinely ordained destiny. So God started it somewhere and he's carrying it somewhere. The NIV Life Application Commentary says the action speaks of the continual organization and carrying forward of the created order to a designed end, to a designed end. So, so the idea in this word that God wants to tell this church that's been through a difficult time, he wants them to know that it all started somewhere. He's the creator. And as the creator, it came into existence because he spoke it. And he speaks it holding together, but even more than that, he's carrying everything to its pre, his predetermined destination. That church needs to know that. Because in that church, a number of people had had the bottom fall out of their life, just like in our congregation. There are some of us who are going through some very difficult times. It didn't work out the way that we had thought and planned. It, that whatever, you know, the business, the relationship, the finances, whatever it is, it didn't work out. And it's in that time that you begin to think, what in the world is going on? Well, here's what in the world is going on. He is holding us together, but even more than that, he is carrying us to our predetermined destination that he has for us. And this church in the midst of their difficulty needs to know that he's carrying them through, and not just through, but to something. Does that make sense? So God has his hand on each and every one of them, and in the midst of their difficulty, he's carrying them. Not just holding them together, which he is, but carrying them to the place where he has for them. Then number six, uh, very quickly, he says, um, uh, we'll write it down, then I'll read it. He has made me right with God. He's made me right with God. Verse three, he says, he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, when he had made purification of sins, this congregation needed to know that Jesus had already made purification of sins. Now, why, why did they need to be reminded of that? When you and I go through difficult times, it's, it's very easy to think that there's some great sin in our life, that God is mad at us somehow, or he's somehow frustrated with us. All right, am I the only one who ever feels that way? It's like, start going through difficulty. Yes, I see that hand in the back. Hands are going up all over, thousands of hands going up all over the auditorium. <laughs> But, but they needed to know and they needed to be reminded that just because they were going through a difficult time, the one thing that they could rest in is that he had made purification for their sins. They're not his because they're keeping it all together. They're doing all the right stuff. He's already handled that. So God's not frustrated with them. He loves them. And so no matter what they go through, they can rest in that. So hopefully that, that, that makes sense. Then number seven, and we're going to wrap it up with this one, but Write this down. Jesus is sitting, and we'd say ruling, at rest and in control. Verse 3, he says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down, I've underlined, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
in their current situation, what they were facing, they needed to know that Jesus was on the throne. He was resting. He was not pacing and he was not stressing. And, and that, that's important. The, the way to, that hits me to best explain this is that um, many of you know my story. We're back in 1990. My dad went away to a federal prison for 10 years. And it was at that time that I became the guardian of my younger sister, who was seven. And her name is Daisy. And so the first few years were very difficult. And I won't go into the stories, but it was very difficult as we were trying to figure out how do we do life and uh, how do we make it happen. Well, over the years, we finally got our feet on solid ground. And uh, if you're a plured, one of the things that you learn about plurds is that to be a plured, you have to scuba dive. So it's just one of those unwritten rules. That and jump out of airplanes. But uh, that's a story for another day. So Daisy, I took her when she was about 14. She'd been scuba certified. And we decided that we were going to do this great, um, this great dive off of West Palm. And it's called Feed the Stingrays Dive. You might have been on that if you're a diver. And it was one of those dives where you go down deep enough to where the light doesn't really come through from the surface. If you've ever dove that deep, you're sitting on a, a very white, sandy bottom floor. And as you look out, everything becomes very dark. You can see the, the, the white sand in front of you, but after a few feet, everything becomes very dark. So we're down there, and the, the current off of West Palm is very strong. So you, they have to put you in front of this big rock formation, or the current would just, just pull you away. So there we are. We get down to the bottom of this, and this is the coolest thing ever. And um, the, the dive master opens up his bucket, and he begins to pull out chum. And when he does that, stingrays from all over come flying in. Has anybody ever done that dive, by the way? It's the coolest thing ever. And there's like hundreds of them. And they just come flying. They come across the floor, you know, and the, the, you have this white sandy floor, and they just come zooming in. They're coming down and all around. And all of a sudden, Daisy begins to panic. And she turns around and she looks at me. And of course, I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that experience because for me, it became a slice of life that I never forgot. She looked at me and she realized that if I was okay, we were okay. You see, through the years, we'd walked through a lot of difficult times together. And through the years, she had learned to look at me in times of difficulty. And she came to realize, not at first, but over time, that if I was okay, then we were okay. And so when she looked at me and I was okay, I was having a blast, immediately her state changed and she was able to enjoy the adventure. As you walk with God through the years, through the good times and the bad times, and for this church, they needed to know that he was sitting on the throne, not pacing, not stressing, ruling at rest. Because as they look at him, and the thing that God brings us to is as we look at him, if he's okay, we're okay. And you don't get that in an instantaneous experience. You get that with walking with the Lord over a period of time and going through the stuff of life looking at him and realizing, if you're okay, we're okay. When you come to that place, it changes everything. Then you get to enjoy the adventure. Sometimes that adventure can be uncomfortable, but it's an adventure. That's what this church needed to know. 
And God says in the first three verses, before we go any further and we unlock all the things that we're going to talk about, you have to know this about who I am. Does that make sense? So maybe you're here today and you're going through that difficult time and the bottom has fallen out. Here's what he would want me to... Here's what he'd want me to say to you. First of all, he's at rest, and he's carrying you to that place that he has. And so you hang on to him, and you trust. And remember that this whole book is an encouragement to keep trusting. And week after week, we're going to come back and be encouraged in our faith as we go. If you are taking those steps of faith and you're stepping out, wanting to accomplish great things for God, just know that in the same way, it's not always going to look like it's working out. It's in that time you exercise some faith. and Each week, you'll be encouraged to take that step and trust as you continue on that, on that path of faith. The most important thing I could say today in all of that is if you're here today and you've never begun that relationship with Jesus, who is God, who made purification for sins, the single most important decision you can make in your life is to be right with him. And the way that you do that is you simply invite God, who became a man, who stepped in your place and paid the price for all the stuff you had ever done because he wanted to make you eternally right with him. And you receive that. You receive that. You say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I want that relationship with you. And the Bible calls that being saved Jesus called it being born again because it's a new life. And when that begins, Jesus steps into your life. Your past, as far as he's concerned, is gone. He steps in and he begins to work in your life, reforming you into the image that he has for you and the purpose that he has for you. And you've never met anyone who's ever come to Jesus, who's walked with him through the years, who has ever said, I regret making that decision. But what you will hear people say, you'll hear people say, why did I wait? Why did I wait? Because as a father, his desire for you as his child is that you lead a life that's meaningful, it's productive, where he can speak his wisdom into your life. And he can use you in ways that you never thought imaginable. So I'm going to pray, and if that's you today, then, then you have the opportunity to pray. After the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing by, and uh, before you leave here today, let us know that you've made a decision by, by marking that on your connection card, and then before you leave here today, solidify that decision. Pray with one of the prayer partners in the front after the service, and pray with you. Jesus, as we begin this book today and uh, as we go forward, for some of us, we're, we're going through that difficult time and we need to be reminded that you're carrying us to that predetermined destination that you have for us. You haven't let us go and you're carrying us. And, and uh, we need to know that you're on the throne, you're ruling in a resting position, so you're not stressing or pacing over our situation and you're bringing us to the place where we realize that if you're okay, we're okay. And if that's us today, Father, we receive your encouragement to continue to trust and go forward. And for those of us who are, you've placed in our heart to launch out and to conquer and to, to do something great, 
and you've put it in our heart and we can't deny it. Not every day it looks like it's going to work out. So we've decided today that we're going to continue to trust and believe. But then, Lord, even most important for those who are here today who've never began that relationship with you, we look to you and we just say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want the Jesus who's really real. Maybe not the Jesus that was represented to me in other environments, but the Jesus who's really real. I want to know you. I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm asking you to step into my life and to change me. And if that's you today, here's what he says. He says, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens to me, I will come in. He says, I'll dine with you and I'll never leave. I'll never leave. If that's you today, you've made the most important decision of your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this congregation. We thank you for your word and encourage us this week as we go forward. Help us to walk in you. Help us, Lord, to represent you well in this time and place where you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And once again, all God's people said, God bless you guys. You're dismissed.